Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we'll be joined by Maria Inahosa, anchor and executive producer of Latino USA and now recent Pulitzer Prize winner for a podcast she did about a man's journey from juvenile lifer to returning citizen. We're going to talk about Maria's work, the issues surrounding juvenile lifers and how the nation's changing demographics are affecting our politics. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, that's a sentence that we have had forever in this country, but for a really long time, it was a sentence that you could receive as a child in the United States. Someone under 18 who commits a crime be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And that's true even after 2012, when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down these sentences for juveniles as unconstitutional. They said it doesn't make sense to treat children like adults in the criminal context, mostly because we don't do it in most other contexts, and their brains are not developed to the point where we can hold them responsible the way we do adults. But that 2012 decision did mean that thousands of people who had been locked up for life at least got a chance to argue that they shouldn't be in jail until they die. And so you've got lots of them who have been re-released into society. Those kids are now adults trying to figure out how to craft a life for themselves after, in some cases, decades behind bars. But what's the experience of somebody trying to do that? What are the chances that you can build a productive life when you were sent to prison before your 18th birthday? Maria Inahosa knows a lot about the lives of these juvenile lifers. As a journalist, she has followed the life of David Luis Gonzalez, also known as Suave, since 1993, which was just a few years after he was locked up for a life sentence that he was given as a 17-year-old. Recently, her team with Futuro Media created a really compelling podcast about Suave's experience leaving prison and trying to build a new life for himself. That podcast also was just awarded a Pulitzer Prize. Maria, of course, is a good friend of Detroit Today and one of the most compelling storytellers and thinkers that I get to talk to uh, as our host here. And so we've invited Maria to talk about Suave's story, what it's like for him and those who are re-entering the world, and of course, what it was like for Maria to cover juvenile lifers as a budding journalist and to celebrate the fact that she is now a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Maria, welcome back to Detroit Today. <laughs> hey, Stephen. What's hey. up, Detroit? Good morning. Good morning. It is so great thank to you. hear your voice. Oh, my gosh. And thank you, for, as we say in, <clears throat> in Mexican Spanish, gracias por todas esas flores. Uh-huh. Thank you for, <clears throat> for giving me so many flowers <laughs> because right. you throw a lot of flowers at me. But, yeah, it's true. We did win a Pulitzer, and that is the truth. That is in real life. It did happen. Never thought it would. <laughs> but it did. It's yes. the truth. So my first question is a question you once asked me. Uh, You once asked me about that moment when you see your name uh, among all of these other people 
who've been awarded a, a Pulitzer Prize. Tell me about that. Tell me about your reaction. Tell me if you were expecting it. Did you know in advance? Uh, or was this just a, a, a clean surprise moment? Well, <clears throat> for me, it was a clean surprise moment because I, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know, you know, like awards, I know certain awards, for example, Suave won the IDA, which is the International Documentary Association Award. In the business of documentarians, if you win an IDA, it's like winning an Oscar. And we won that for audio. We were the dark horse and we won. Uh And I mean, that was like, oh my God, never, what we won. So that was a beautiful recognition. And to be honest with you, I knew that we had submitted for a Peabody and we didn't win a Peabody. Okay. And I was like, I was like, my husband has taught me. He's an artist from the Dominican Republic, Herman Perez. And he was like, bueno, se lo perdieron ellos. They lost. They didn't get the, they didn't give you the Peabody. It's Peabody's fault. So I was like, you know what? We're good with the IDA. I love Suave, the podcast. I'm so happy. Don't be greedy. This is not about <laughs> awards. Understand this. Because it's like, really, you can't, you know, like, yeah, you didn't win the Peabody. Okay, fine. So I didn't know. I don't know if I even knew. Um, because again, for me, the awards, it's like, you know, about that. So I'm not up like, did we submit? Did we this? Did, did, did. <laughs> so I was in the middle of a call. Uh, actually with a with a funder trying to raise more money for what we do because this is all philanthropic work and um and my phone started to blow up with people that I hadn't heard from for a while so I was like I just had to say I, I need to I need to take a moment and I need to um check my phone because something is happening I don't understand what <laughs> and um and so I I saw Pulitzer and I say, and I saw Yuan and I saw Suave and I started screaming because I, I, you know, the Pulitzer started giving recognition to audio only two years ago. Yeah, just a few years Um, ago. Just two years ago, Nadia Raymond, the first Latina to win um, in that category, uh, used to work at Futuro. But the last thing I was thinking, I just like the Pulitzer audio, like it's not a, you know, it's not front and center. So if you happen to see the video that I um, took, that I took minutes after (laughs) I had found out, um, it was very honest. I was totally freaking out and it has lasted for the good part of the month. It's just, I still have not gotten back to so many people uh, via email. So I'm going to, you know, little by little do that. And just so many congratulations. And, and I feel Stephen, like a lot of folks, um, I mean, one, this was, you know, 25 years plus in the making, but it really feels like a community win. Like the people's win. Wow. Like Futuro Media, it's run, you know, created by a Mexican immigrant from the south side of Chicago, you know, (laughs) with a bunch of of women, black women, you know, women from immigrants from India, you know, eh, refugees, (laughs) undocumented for, and, you know, we did this thing and, and we've been doing this work with Latino USA and in my career for many decades. And so I do feel like the people, by the way, you're going to love this, Stephen. In my Harlem neighborhood, because, you know, I live in New York, uh-huh. proud Midwesterner, love my Midwest, love Chicago, but I'm a, I'm a New Yorker and I live in Harlem. And people in Harlem in my my park, you know, yo, Maria, congratulations, <laughs> Ro- rolling down the car windows. Yay, we're so happy for you. I mean, just so it really is a celebration. And then, you know, for Suave. Yes. Right, Suave was going to die in prison. I'm sorry to say it that way, but that is that what was the sense. Was, that yeah. was what was facing him. He was going to come out, as he said, in a box. And so, gosh, I mean, look at what's happened just because he took a chance on engaging with the journalist and in then believing in the power of his own voice and his own life. So it's it's been kind of a dream. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, again, congratulations on on the win, and and, and I will 
give you two two little previews of of the future the 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 summer after the win is going to be the best summer you ever have right it's going to be incredible <laughs> uh, there's this glow that that just extends over that entire that entire time period and then um there will be there'll come this time when you kind of get to decide what it really means and what it can mean and what things are possible that maybe weren't before uh, because of it. And, and that is a joy that extends over, over many, many years. So uh, it's, it's really. So, so you, yeah, you feel it, Stephen, because, you know, you, it's like when you win a Pulitzer, it is, there are not many awards that have like, that level of recognition around the world. That's right. Uh, it just doesn't. So I'm glad that you're giving me the pre- preview of the best summer that I'm going to have, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you know, from a f- fellow Pulitzer winner um, to know what to expect. I do. Um, I, this morning was one of the first mornings when, <clears throat> when I didn't wake up early and just like, wow, you want a Pulitzer. You know, because you're just like, wow, did that yeah. really happen? Yeah. And it's like you keep checking and, so and I, looking. <laughs> yeah. Did that happen? <laughs> and I have been thinking, Stephen, because and you and I talk about this a lot, and we understand um, as journalists who are not white in a predominantly white space, mm-hmm. we understand that when we get a recognition like this, it is about um, an institution of great respect. And in in my particular case, I feel like the rewarding of Suave was, it, it is making a statement. Yes. And I, and I think the conversation that other journalists have, you know, had on social media and are, you know, bringing forth and we can talk about it, which is, so, so what now about objectivity when, and how do we talk about quote unquote objectivity? Uh, the Pulitzer just awarded a podcast that is all about Oh, what happens when, it, what, what is this thing that you call objectivity? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think on a journalistic scale, um, I feel very, um, I feel joyful at the responsibility that we, that we have to be part of this conversation, to, um, to go deeper into the conversation. But I, I still like what you said. This is going to be the summer glow of your life. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <right>. <laughs> You are going to have a good time. There's no question about that. So, so I do want to start talking about this incredible uh, work that's been been honored by the, the the Pulitzer. And I want to start in 1993 when you you start reporting this story. Tell me what uh, attracted you to it, and tell me what you thought then about what your what your goal was. What were you trying to do? So um, because of the Pulitzer, I have had to do some deep thinking about, so what happened exactly in 1993? I was a new, I was a new correspondent for NPR. I was the first Latina correspondent uh, at NPR. And so my voice was getting out there and, you know, I am one, I am, I think, yeah, no, the first um, in public radio, certainly, uh, maybe in other media, that was like, I'm Maria Hinojosa, saying my name clearly like I am Spanish speaking, I am Maria Hinojosa. And so there were people who were hearing this and reacting well or not, or reacting not so well. But it, Suave hears this because the only radio that Suave was given, the only stations he could listen to was like one, like top 40, and the other one was public radio. That's the only stations that you could listen to in the prison in Pennsylvania. He had heard my voice. He was like, yo, what's up with this Maria Rosa? (laughs) And he asks that I give the commencement speech um, for graduates inside this maximum security men's prison, Greaterford in Pennsylvania, one of the largest men's state prisons in the country. And so they got in touch and they asked me if I would come and give this commencement. And Here's the, here's the interesting point, Stephen, as journalists, I had heard a data point, which is that the prison population was one of the fastest growing populations in the country. Now, mm. if you're a journalist, you want to be reporting about whatever the fastest growing population of the country is. You sure. want to be reporting about that. But as you know, as journalists, we cannot get into prisons. So this was... Um, 
you know, I come to journalism kind of like that. Well, because I'm born in Mexico, so I am a Mexican immigrant and I did become an American citizen. And so I'm just like, yo, but you guys say you have freedom of the press and the First <laughs> Amendment and like transparency. So wait, now that I'm an American journalist, I want to go into the prisons. Well, you can't. By the way, you cannot get into an ICE detention camp or facility. And this yeah. this is a danger to our democracy and our society. Anyway, I get this invitation. I'm invited to go in and I'm like, I'm a Trojan horse. I'm inside a prison. Oh my God. I'm going to get this much closer to being able to come back and do an interview. That was my thinking. And um, Suave comes up to me uh, in, uh, there was a bunch of men, many of them lifers, as they call themselves, all wearing the same scrubs, you know, nasty brown colored scrubs. And, um, and what stood out was that Swabi was like, yo, I'm from New York. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a private. I said, what's up? What are you doing here in Pennsylvania? It's like, yo, man, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a lifer. I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. You know, I'm so inspired by what you said. So what can I do? What can I do? I'm going to be in here for life. And I was like, well, stay in touch with me for life, bro. Like establish a communication, you know, be my eyes and ears. And then I said, I said, and you could be the voice for the voiceless. We need to know what's happening inside a prison like this. I don't say voice, you can be a voice for the voiceless because I don't believe people are voiceless. I believe they are not heard, but I don't believe they're voiceless. But it's a saying. And Suave said, oh my God, she just gave me a task. I'm going to do this. And um, and then I came back and I actually interviewed Suave per, for a piece uh, that won um, a Robert F. Kennedy Award about uh, prison as a form of a rite of passage for men of all races. And, and then I just, I just stayed in touch because the truth is, Stephen, I knew where Suave was going to be for the rest of his life. Sure. Sure. I knew the address. And I was like, I have had people who I know and love who have been in prison. And I, I always want to make them know that they are being heard or seen or, so I said, I'm going to send him a Christmas card every year because I know where he's going to be. And I'm a Christmas card lady. That's <laughs> what I do. So it was <clears throat> one part really solid, like journalism, like hardcore, like Trojan horse, like you're on the inside, like you're the eyes and ears. And on the other hand, it was like, you're also this young man who's going to be here for life. You're a kid. Yep. Yeah. And I'm so, just going to be like, a, I'm going to be like a friend and by sending a Christmas card. You, you've alluded to this already, but the storytelling here is so heavily influenced by that relationship. And, you know, we fret a lot, I think, in journalism needlessly about uh, those kinds of things, you know, boundaries and rules and uh, the things that tell us to keep distance from the stories that we're telling and, and, and in particular from the subjects of those stories. But this wouldn't have worked if you did it that way. Um, it, it, there's no way to have created uh, this this compelling journalism without that. And it's better. It's more meaningful. It's so much deeper because of it. I mean, I, I, I know that that, like you said, there's some debate and discussion about sort of what this means, but I, I, I don't know why there is. I mean, it, it, it's so clear that the the breaking of those rules here is what made it great journalism and and again over time right this this incredible decades that you spent doing it um it it's it's what it's what props it up as authentic it's what makes it meaningful and there's not another way to do that so I, um, when the Supreme Court in 2012 uh, handed down this decision, and then in 2014, it was basically, a, there was another decision that said, and also you should really look into the, the young men who have already, and women who have already been sentenced. Mm -hmm. And at that point, that's when I was like, oh my God, I need to start recording all of my conversations with Suave. I need to go back and see him. Um, because something could happen. Now, I have to be honest with you. Suave was very hopeful, always very hopeful. Uh, you know, when somebody is sentenced 
to die in prison. You do not, and Suave and I did not spend a lot of time talking about, so when are you going to get out? <laughs> like, what's the plan? Right. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to tell you is something something connected in me journalistically again when I saw what had happened with the Supreme Court. And I said, this might be the moment that, that this might be the Suave story, the one that you haven't told because, you know, it was 1993 when we first got into contact. This is 2014, you know, 20 years later. Um, so it's like, uh, you know, now I do want you to understand that I had all of these conversations taped. Most of my staff at my company thought I was a little bit crazy because every time Suave would call, I would drop what I was doing and I would start recording with my personal recorder, jump in this. Everybody was like, what is going on here? They didn't know what the story was either. They just, there was this guy named Suave who would call me from prison, who was sentenced to life in prison. (laughs) What is going on? When we finally were able to, because when you run a nonprofit, you know, you don't have funds that are just like, oh, let's just, you know, take this money and do this. You don't have that kind of money in a small nonprofit media company. But I never gave up. I was like, there's a story here. There's a story here. There's a story here. He could get out. He could get out. And um, when Maggie Freeling, who was the first producer who sat down with the material, went through it, uh, she, I think it was two weeks. We were like, you're only going to do this for two weeks. You're going to listen to hours of tape. She came back and she said, look, Maria, there is a story here you're a part of it. So you cannot produce this. And I remember just looking at her and like, hmm. what? She was like, yeah, you, you are a part of the story. And we do transparency in our journalism and the story of what happens, what happened, what continues to happen between you and Suave is part of the story. Not all of it, because this is Suave's story, but that is also a part of it. And I, like you, Stephen, I trust my producers when they say, look, do this or do that, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, we're not going to jump off a burning or jump into a burning <laughs> building. Well, although sometimes <laughs> our producers tell us. They we suggest it would. sometimes, right? <laughs> you know, we, we probably would. So I was like, okay, I trust you. And then Julieta Martinelli was brought on by Marlon Bishop, our senior producer. And they really went at it um, in terms of the material and the the engaging of what happens between Suave and Maria was something we had never heard before. You don't hear a lot of those stories about a journalist and a source and what does this look like? And um, I'm continuing to document. Um, I can't tell you what he is doing today because I, there, there are certain things that we are, you know, keeping, but Suave cannot join us today because he's on a plane to California. Hmm. When he told me yesterday he was like, no, I'm going to be on a flight to California. I'm like, I started screaming. I was like, you're go-. Suave hates planes. I was like, who's going with you? He's like, I'm going alone. So again, now as a friend, as somebody who has been in a plane with Suave, where he almost fainted because he had been in prison for 31 years and you don't get on planes or cars, yeah. they make you dizzy. Yeah. So the thought that he is today on a plane to California wow. on his own to do some high level advocacy, you'll soon find out. I'm like, bro, man. Um, so our relationship, Suave is in mind's relationship. We continue to record because we believe that something will be coming in the future sure. from this. And um, wow. and it is in the end, Stephen, raw journalism. Yes. I yes. am a documentarian and Suave is himself a documentarian. And we are, we're kind of with our eyes wide open. We're like, we're going to document what this looks like. Because he hasn't been out five years and he was in 31. It will take another 31 to get rid of everything that he has or another, uh, whatever, 26 to get rid of whatever he has inside of him because that's what prison can do to that's you. That's what it does to you. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to continue this really wonderful conversation with Maria Inahosa. And we want to hear from you about juvenile lifers. What do you think about the idea of sending people to prison for the rest of their lives when they are children? Uh, ought we be thinking differently about that? What are some alternatives and how do we deal with people who are coming out? 
of prison? How do we help them build productive lives? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Maria Inahosa. She is uh, anchor and executive producer of the Peabody Award-winning show Latino USA. She's also co-host of In the Thick, which is Futuro Media's uh, award-winning political podcast. Uh, she is the president and founder of Futuro. Uh, she is also a recent winner of the Pulitzer Prize, uh, which she won for a podcast about uh, Suave, uh, a person who was sentenced to life in prison without pro- the possibility of parole when he was uh, juvenile uh, and then was released from prison uh, after the Supreme Court uh, declared that such sentences were inappropriate and that uh, people who had received those sentences ought to have a shot, at least a shot, at making the case uh, for their own release. We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Give us a call and tell us what you think of juvenile lifers. Uh, What do you think of this idea of uh, punishing children so harshly in this country? Uh, Are you somebody who was incarcerated as a juvenile or incarcerated at all? What would have helped you um, sort of turn your life in a different direction if you'd had a chance? Uh, Were there alternatives that would have helped you? Uh, Also, give us a sense if you're somebody who has returned from prison to our community, what kinds of supports have you found? What kinds of barriers have you found to building a productive life? 313-577-1019 is the number always here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, I want to go quickly to a caller who I think really helps illuminate this conversation, Maria. Uh, Ronnie in West Bloomfield. Ronnie, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Um. Yeah, I just wanted to call in. We were talking about juvenile lifers, man. That's that's my story. You know, I was um, what what they call a juvenile lifer myself. I served over 40 years in prison. I was waiting for that decision that came down in 2012, which we celebrated um, and thought I was going to get my chance to come home back then. But it took a while. Michigan drug their feet on actually implementing this law. They said it wasn't retroactive. So right. what that means is that it wasn't for the people that were already locked up. It just was for people, future people who commit crimes and stuff. So, yeah, I waited quite a while, and I, I just got out in 2020. And wow. wow. Congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did over oh, congratulations. Years, but I was, I was like, like, like your friend, Suave, I always thought that something was going to happen where they were going to let me out, you know, that I was going to prove that I could be a productive citizen, that I was had some redeeming quality. So I instantly, time I went in, I started preparing myself to, to come out. And it took me 40 years to get out, but I was preparing mm-hmm. myself the whole time because mm-hmm. I never believed that um, America could, could be this cruel. That wow. I, didn't, I just couldn't believe it that I was going to die in prison. Everyone was telling me this, and... And I was fully aware of what the sentence was, but in my mind, I just kept preparing myself. And I did this because I used to, even lifers, they go to the parole board in Michigan. You know, it's just a review. It's mm-hmm. like a formality, yeah. you know, but you go to the parole board. And parole board members was like encouraging me and telling me to keep up the good work. Wow. And they wish it was something that they could do for me. But wow. being that the law was a mandatory life without parole mm-hmm. there was nothing mm-hmm. they could do for me mm-hmm. so, so so ronnie so, t- tell me about the last two years you got out in 2020 after 40 years in prison yeah. I, I, it's hard for me to even imagine where you oh, start when i came out when i came out Stephen, it was like um when i realized actually i was about to get my chance to come home i started thinking about it was doing the 2020 um 
political cycle and I would start thinking about how I could be affected when I get out. What can I do to help some of my brothers that were still locked in and stuff? And I decided that um, if I could just get two or three, you know, uncles that never vote but always complain, I said, if I can get those kind of people to the polls, then I feel that I'm doing my part, you know. And what I did know is when I came out, it was the middle of a, a worldwide pandemic mm-hmm. and it was jobs opening for me, you know. Uh, so I got a job canvassing. A lot of people didn't want to um, canvass at that time. So it was open for me and I walked right in and I started knocking doors for candidates and um, for office and stuff. And like I say, you know, this pandemic, people didn't want to come to the doors, but I was like, hey, you got to come talk to me. I got to get you guys <laughs> to the polls and stuff. And I just started um, communicating with people and and connecting with people. And I found that I really enjoyed it. And I found that I was really affected. The organization that gave me a chance was called Michigan Liberation. Uh, and they yeah. kept tabs on how many doors each mm-hmm. one of their canvases, canvassers um, knocked. And they said I knocked over 1,500 doors. Wow. wow. I'm sure all of them didn't didn't come to the poll, man. But I only wanted to get my my, my goal was to get three people to vote. And I knocked over 1,500 doors the time I came out. And I kind of caught the bug for this work, you know. And I'm saying, this is what I need to be doing. And I was fortunate enough that this other organization called Safe and Just Michigan, um, they, they hired me on. And I'm now their community engagement specialist. And oh, I go oh my God. Congratulations. All right. Here's the applause. <laughs> That's Bravo. Right. What Ronnie. a great story. You know what I see? You, and I swear, Maria, I did not set this up. I did not <laughs> tell Ronnie to call. But, no, and that's the beauty of it, right? That that Ronnie is listening to public radio and he's sure. you know doing this whole because I, I, I just want to say one quick thing, Ronnie. The fact that you never gave up hope. Suave never gave and by the way, Suave went in illiterate. And so like you, he he also had this like extraordinary capacity for hope. And so you're right. He was preparing himself the entire time and other people would look at him and be like, what? He's like, I'm getting ready. And I I think when we continue Suave's story, this capacity that you, Ronnie or Suave and so many others have to believe in something better, to work towards something better and then it kind of happens. There's something really powerful and beautiful in the power of hope and, frankly, hard work. It's really beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And it's such a testament to the that power of the human spirit that, that mm. no matter how far down you put somebody, um, they can always dream uh-huh. about something better. And they will. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. um, the, you, you can't beat that out of somebody. Um, yeah. Boy, Ronnie, so uh, great story, and I'm really, really glad you called um, to share that. Uh, and if you and if you yeah. follow me on social media, Ronnie, get in touch because I'd love to just follow up on your story. Yeah, no, that would be really great. That'd be really great. Let's go to uh, Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, what's on your mind? Good morning. I wanted to share a story with you. Some time ago, I was a speaker at a career day and met a smart young kid that I mentored. I had some contacts then, and he was on a track to go to Cranbrook. I enrolled him in German classes. But after I was no longer in his life, he and his boys uh, in the Joy Road Evergreen area decided it would be a great idea to carjack someone. He was holding the gun. And he got 10 years. Okay. Which he did five. He's out now, but uh, as soon as he gets jobs as a dishwasher, whatever jobs he can, he's had over 20 jobs, but as soon as they run a background check, he gets fired. Oh, no. He was 17 at the time that this happened. Uh, it seems like his whole life is ruined. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Bernadette, that is still such a barrier in our in our community and and you know i mean it's a barrier for such a big part of the population Uh, i i quote this statistic all the time on our show but but one in three african-american males uh over the age of 18 in in the city of detroit has has a a record has been to to jail or to prison um 
you're talking about a huge number of people who who need opportunity um, mm-hmm. and who need a second chance, but who have this this mark on their record that other people uh, often use to disqualify them. So, Bernard, I'm glad you called and and made that point, um, Marie. I wonder what that's like for Suave right now. How much does the, the record that he has follow him around as he's trying to rebuild his life. Yeah. And one quick data point. Um, I remember reading some data from Harvard that said that about 70% of Americans have committed the equivalent of a felony. Um, they've just never been caught. Right. So over, <laughs> over policing in a black community, like yes. in Harlem, like in certain parts of Detroit, like on the South side of Chicago, it leads to that statistic of one out of every three black men having um, some kind of a record. And that is the way in which you disempower a community. So um, the response of, and I'm going to continue to try, I mean, I would say Ronnie should get in touch with this person to help him get in touch with some of those organizations that Mm -hmm. help Ronnie. Mm -hmm. Look, Suave and I were just talking about this. Um, He is on lifetime parole. He has to pay the parole every month. He has to check in with parole. He has to let them know where he's traveling. If he's leaving the state, he has to, you know, there are all kinds of uh, limitations on him and on his life. And um, for Suave, for example, the only way that that goes away is if the governor commutes his sentence, pardons him. Um, And I think it's something that Suave is thinking about because when you are on lifetime parole, the jail system is the jail. The prison system is following you around everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yes, you are no longer in that horrific building uh, on lockdown, but um, you are not free. Um, and this notion, you know, the term I never use, right, to describe a human being, which is a word illegal, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, if you are on lifetime parole, It is as if you are walking with your illegality everywhere because all you need to do is jaywalk. And that's enough for you. That's it. You broke a law. You you spit out gum, you know, on the subway or anything like that can lead you back to prison for five years, a decade, who knows. So um, this is part of the conversation I think that Suave is so adamant about, which is, okay, so now that we get out and like Ronnie, we have proved ourselves over and over again. Look, the key understanding is what you said in the introduction of this hour, which is the Supreme Court realized that there's scientific uh, research that shows that a juvenile brain is a juvenile brain until you are 26, 26 And a juvenile brain, so just we're going to make it really simple here, is like the equivalent of a toddler brain in the sense that a toddler is like, oh, my God, that looks so uh, yummy. Let me put that in my mouth or let me just walk without realizing I'm going to fall off a curb. Or, you know, a toddler does not conceive of what is coming. Adolescence, if we have been parents of adolescents and we have all been adolescents, you know, you did some crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. So that is why you cannot, you should not, and the Supreme Court made the right decision, you cannot uh, enforce the laws of adults upon human beings, and frankly, until the age of 26. This is when their brains change and then become adult brains at 27. So I am very hopeful that in the next iteration of the Suave story that we are able to say, oh my God, we were invited by the governor to go to his you know, mansion and 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 have Suave's sentence commuted. It would be extraordinary. Wow. Wow. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Maria Inahosa. Also continue talking to you on social media and on the phones. David in Detroit, you'll be up next. If you want to join him, 313-577-1019 is the number. Call and tell us what you think of juvenile lifer laws. Uh, Tell us about your experiences, perhaps, with incarceration, uh, returning to society, rebuilding a life. What's that like? What are the barriers? What are the opportunities? Uh, We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Maria Inahosa. She is anchor and executive producer of Latino USA and co-host of In the Thick, Futuro Media's award-winning political podcast. She's the president and founder of Futuro. She's also a recent Pulitzer Prize winner for a podcast called Suave uh, about uh, a man who was sentenced to life in prison without parole uh, as a juvenile uh, and was later released thanks to a reversal by the Supreme Court of U.S. policy on that issue. Um, we're talking about uh, juvenile lifers. We're talking about the harshness of uh, the criminal justice system uh, in this country and the ways in which it disqualifies so many people uh, from productive lives. Uh, we want to hear from you as well about your sense of this issue, juvenile lifers. Does it make sense to sentence somebody who is under the age of 18 to be in prison for the rest of their life? Uh, and what do we do once somebody who has been in prison for a long time comes back to our community? How do we make that about opportunity and not barriers? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Maria, before we get back to uh, our, our listeners, I do want to play just a little bit of sound from, uh, from Suave. Uh, and this cut is you and David Gonzalez, Suave, talking after he was released from prison. <laughs> I never thought I'd be locked up in a room like this again. <laughs> I'm cool. I know you're cool, sweetie. You're out of prison. I just had a little flashback. Okay. It's just like, it's too real. It was actually in this room, right? In this studio where you would call and I'd come running in. And we'd record, you know, I'd hold the phone oh. up here, right here. So it was in this room that I had hundreds of phone calls with you. Wow, I didn't know that. I mean, the emotion in that clip, I mean, which, which of course is present through much of the podcast, but that moment. I mean, again, Maria, the, the, the bravery really to, to include that, to, 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 to show that for you, this meant something. For you, this was emotional too. Of course, not as emotional as it could have been for him. But uh, that, that this is a very different sensibility um, when it comes to, to the storytelling that we're all taught in journalism. Well, I'm glad that you gave me that lead up so that I could wipe the tears because, you know, I, <laughs> I don't listen to the Suave podcast every morning, you know, so that I'm like, it, it, so every time, it's been a few times that I've had to hear that. And I do, I get all emotional because here's what happened. You know, we have a little teeny, we call it the immigrant studio in our office back in Harlem. One day we'll get back there. And it's a small, it's like, um, it's like a closet. It's like a little closet that you build. Uh, and it's like maybe five feet by five feet. It's very small and dark. And that's when Suave walks in there for the first time since he had gotten out. Mm -hmm. He was in New York. He comes in and that's when he has this little breakdown. He's just like, this is what the hole feels like. The hole is the uh, the room where they send you when you're punished. And so I forgot your question. So the emotion, well, look, you know, if you're going to record, it's kind of like when people are like, oh my God, you were so honest in your memoir. <laughs> like, well, well, it's a memoir. It's That's a what memoir. I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> you know, so if I'm going to be recording my conversations with Suave, I'm going to record all of them. And, um, and whatever happens, happens. And again, you know, that 
that material, you're right. It could have ended up on the cutting room floor because it would have just been like, oh my God, Maria Hinojosa, she's crying. What's going on? Why is she crying? And by the way, I think that, um, you know, some people on the Pulitzer Committee uh, were a little freaked out by the fact that in the opening two minutes, it's not just about Suave. It's like Maria Hinojosa is crying. What the hell is going on? Uh, and then, you know, it was like, well, you have to listen to the whole thing. I, I think that Emotion is really powerful in the work that we do as journalists. Um, I think that uh, being uh, being present, being physically present with someone, touching someone, like putting your hand on their shoulder. Mm -hmm. This is something I learned from Scott Simon, you know, uh, the, the, the great American NPR anchor mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. Weekend Edition Saturday, my, you know, the person that I first produced. So I learned from, from Scott and I, I would see Suave, I would see Suave, I would see Scott Simon getting em emotionally connected in that moment. And I was like, oh, this is a tool that we have as journalists. It is not something that we shut off. Right. In fact, having this tool makes us better journalists. Because a lot of the, the thing about journalism and journalists is that you have to you have to be able to be in your emotions. You have to be like, wow, that I'm really curious about that. Or that doesn't feel right. That doesn't sit right with my gut. Or, you know, that my BS detector is like, you know, or <laughs> I, wow, that's, you know, yeah, we are a little bit ADHD, but we, we have to, we train ourselves to trust our gut in this sense. And, um, and that, that is the essence of what, what I was doing with Suave in that moment. Right. And, yeah. and, 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 and he with me, right. It was a deep element of trust. And I think, all right, now if you get really Machiavellian about it, right? Well, it's like, well, you know, Hosa, she was operating as a journalist. All she wanted was a source. Nah, okay. And Suave, all he wanted was to have a journalist on the outside. You know, it's like, yeah, okay. But in the end, something else happened, which mm -hmm. is that we listened to each other. And what's happened, because Suave always said, you know, you've been, you're a great friend. And I always said, uh, well, it's not a friendship, Suave. I can't call you. When you were in prison, I couldn't call you if I needed a friend. So you weren't really a friend. Wow. Now, I have to be honest, Stephen. I have to be honest. Like, you were not my friend. We had this relationship, this experience, this thing, you know, but a friend? No, no. Now that Suave, and frankly, during the pandemic, that's when Suave and I have had to do some very intense work around friendship. Because... I will continue to document this. In other words, yeah. you don't just spend 31 years in prison, get out, okay, do a podcast. And then it's like, okay, it's over. Like there's nothing. No, I'm documenting what it is like. And he is documenting uh, what it is like to be in this life after 31. You're like Roddy after 40 years. It, they are documenting part of American history because to get back to the root of it, the population in prison is unjustly high in our country. And thanks to activists, love the activists, I'm not one, but love y'all, who continue to pressure to reduce mass incarceration, to look at policing and proper policing. And my only hope, Stephen, is that that, that amount of attention to reducing mass incarceration is also connected with the rising population now of who's being put behind bars, you know what the answer is. Hmm. People who were not born here, yeah. immigrants. And the difference is that that's even in a darker hole. You know, that's in a darker hole. So the Black Lives Matter movement uh, intersecting directly and the, and the ending mass incarceration and abolish uh, policing intersecting directly with immigration activists because... We we are all doing this to make our country better, right? And yeah. ultimately, that is what the Supreme Court did, at least that Supreme Court. I don't know about this Supreme Court, but that is what the Supreme Court did. It said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna make our country a little bit better by by making this decision. Yeah. yeah. I want to quickly go to another uh, phone call. Uh, David in Detroit. David, I've only got about a minute left, but I uh, wanted to get you in here. All right, real quick, I just want to say good morning uh, to mm -hmm. your guests. I appreciate the conversation about this work. Uh, real quick, uh, Ron talked about um, him being in uh, 
in prison and getting out voting. I believe voting and policy is very, very important, especially here in uh, the Detroit, Michigan area. Steve, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the work that uh, Jeff Garrett did back in the early 2000s with the NPR program. We worked with General Program Home, trying to lower our rates of recidivism. So we appreciate that work, and policy is very, very important. Secondly, when you talk about finding work as an ex-offender, when you come out, being at home or being in the place where you're used to being may not always be the right place for you. What we found when we were working is that a lot of times you need to find ex-offender-friendly states who actually cultivate and welcome those that have had um, experience or who have been in, in prison. Yes. And I think yes. that the last point, I say it too, but the last point is entrepreneurial experience. Um, what we did was yeah. we actually taught people how to start their own businesses because, exactly. you know, what happens is they don't ask you, uh, what crime have you ever had a crime? They just want to know if you can paint, if you can cut grass, if you can fix right. this or fix that. So I believe by, you know, giving them what they need uh, in terms of resources and um, supporting them along the way will go a long way. I know you got to go. Love yeah. to show them up to good work. David, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really glad we got you in there because um, those are really, really important points, all of them. Uh, Maria, we've only got 30 seconds left, but um, I, I do want to give you a chance to respond to David. Uh Look, people, uh, we don't use the term ex-convict. Uh, people uh, serving who spent time in prison are citizens behind bars, incarcerated citizens, returning citizens. Um, and yeah, what they are part of our community. Again, we have one of the largest prison population, the largest prison population in the world. On the planet, yes. On the planet. And so therefore, it is incumbent on all of us to do whatever we can like listen to what David said, listen to what Ronnie said and check our own judgments. And those of you who, you know, the whole idea of getting rid of the box, ban the box, which means, you know, have you ever committed, you know, been incarcerated, get rid of the box, at least in upper um, education so that our formerly incarcerated can have a full life that they deserve. And good to talk to you, Stephen. Love you, yes. Detroit. Maria. Congratulations again. Enjoy that uh, Pulitzer summer that I uh, was telling you about and uh, keep up the good work. It's always great to talk with you. That's going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when we're going to talk with scholar John Anderson about the idea of taxing Detroit land more than its buildings to generate more revenue for the city. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.